Well, as you turn in your Bibles, I'd ask that you would turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, and we uh, find ourselves at what many would call the pinnacle of the story, the great climax that's about to take place in the life of Elijah. And we find ourselves in 1 Kings 18, uh, verses 20 uh, through 40 this morning, and uh, we are going to learn about the showdown uh, between, if you will, good and evil, the showdown between Ahab and Elijah, the showdown between Baal and God. And in this showdown, we are going to learn some incredible truths of what God wants to teach us this morning. And as we do, I'm going to ask that we would stand once again as we read from God's Word uh, this incredible passage of Scripture. Then I'll ask for God's blessing on our time this morning. First Kings 18, verses 20 through 40. It says, So Ahab went throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it, uh, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of, the, of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which is in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that the people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. 
When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Let's go ahead and spend some time in prayer. I want to take just a, a couple moments also to uh, be in prayer. I, I, I'm sure, I, I don't remember John saying anything about this, but uh, I don't know if you've been affected by some of the images that we've seen on our news in regards to Japan. And uh, I want to just take a moment to pray for our fellow brothers and sisters of humanity and pray for the believers there that through this incredible tragedy, and it seems like there is even more with this nuclear meltdown that may take place, that we would just lift them up as we go into our time of prayer. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, first of all, we pray for the devastation that's taking place in the great country of Japan. Lord, we pray for those who uh, even now may find themselves still under rubble waiting to be rescued. Lord, I heard that temperatures uh, were in the low 30s uh, this last night. And Lord, the pain and the anguish that uh, those people must be feeling. Lord, from our comfortable places, the greatest discomfort we had this week is that we had to get up an hour early. And yet, Lord, we see with our own eyes the devastation Uh, of a massive wall of water, the devastation that comes with the earth being shaken as it was. And Lord, we pause, uh, Lord, first of all to say thank you that 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 did not uh, hit us. But Lord, we recognize that while we um, were spared, we recognize that many weren't, Lord. Thousands of people, uh, it seems, may have lost their lives. Lord, uh, thousands missing. And Lord, we pray for the workers, we pray for uh, the relief efforts that are taking place in that land. Lord, bless it, Father. We pray that you would watch over every uh, bit of uh, work that is done. Lord, allow these people to see your hand in, in both the good and the bad. Lord, we pray that the glory of Almighty God would be shown to that nation, that the people there, Lord, that follow you and know you, Lord, that they would be confident in your work in their lives and in the lives of their people. Lord, I also pray that those who don't know you, Lord, we know that the population is not one given to Christianity. And so, Lord, we pray, we petition you that this would cause a great revival in the hearts and minds of the people of Japan. Lord, I pray that if there's something that we as a church would be able to do, that you would open our eyes to the opportunity and that we would be generous, even in our time of struggle financially, that we would find ways out of our own uh, issue of poverty to be rich because you who were rich became poor on our behalf. Lord, I pray also for this issue with uh, the nuclear power plants, Lord, that could create havoc for many years to come, that could bring issues of cancer and other terrible diseases, Lord, if this uh, meltdown takes place. Lord, we pray for those that are working on it, Lord, because uh, they are important to you and therefore they are important to us. So, Lord, we pray for that especially now as well. Lord, now we come to your word, and Lord, we are so excited that we hold your word in, your, in our hands and that your words uh, are being able to be spoken to us so that we can live differently as a result of what you say to us. Lord, speak to us now as we go to a time of studying that great word so that we will be a different people as a result. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. As we come to 1 Kings 18... Uh, we are brought into what I want to call the battle of the century. 
As a sports fan, there is nothing better than competition, fierce and strict competition. There's something about two teams or two individuals taking the field or the court or entering into the ring of combat to show who is best, to show who is most prepared, to show who would reign supreme as the champion. And some of these battles take our breath away. Uh, Some of them we are so hyped up and excited to see what will happen that we find ourselves, as we observe these great battles, we find ourselves on the edge of our seats. Every sport has them. In fact, uh, who can forget as a boxing fan the great fights between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali? Who can forget the great golf competitions between the great Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas? Who can forget uh, the great battles in women's tennis between Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett? I wasn't around, many of us weren't, but who can remember the old real films in black and white showing the competition between the great Jesse Owens track star and the uh, not-so-great Aryan nation uh, uh, of white individuals that uh, Adolf Hitler said would beat anybody, and Jesse Owens comes back with four gold medals. Great competitions that take place. Who can forget on the basketball court Magic Johnson versus Larry Bird and, of course, the Bulls versus the Pistons. And of the greatest of all of the competitions, the Chicago White Sox versus the St. Mary's School for the Blind Women. <laughs> great rivalries. Great competitions. But none of them stand and are able to reach the pinnacle of what we're going to see today. You know, the Bible's full of showdowns. The Bible's full of incredible battles. We can't forget Moses versus Pharaoh, Joshua in the battle of Jericho. We can't forget David versus Goliath, or even the angel of the Lord slaying 185,000 Assyrian troops. And who can forget Jesus in the wilderness? Battle after battle, who would be the victor? Who would reign supreme? Well, in each of those In the scriptures we see God is the victor, God is the champion, God is the one who shows himself to be far greater than any other. And so as we look at Elijah 18, it will be difficult to deal with 20 verses and try to address everything, and I won't be able to with the time that I have. But I want to break this battle into three things and and look at it through the lens of a sporting event, if you will, and all that takes place in regards to it. And so the first thing I want us to look at in our outlines this morning is the pre-game fanfare. As we look at this epic battle, we will see the beginning of this battle take place long before it starts. As is in the experience of the sports world, if you're a fan like myself, I love to listen to sports talk. And the reason why I want to listen to sports talk is to listen to the uh, thoughts of commentators and experts when they talk about the game that is about to come. What are the key moments? Who are the key players? How is the game going to live itself out? What are the keys to victory going to be an hour after hour, phone call after phone call, the stories behind the game, the stories uh, of the schemes and the plays that are going to make one team victorious over the next. I wonder if some of that was going on in 1 Kings 18. If there was some pre-game fanfare, if there was some talk going on, and I would think that while it's some speculation, that it probably was the case. For three and a half years, 
the nation of Israel was well aware of Elijah laying forth what was going to take place. There would be neither dew nor rain until I command it, said Elijah in 1 Kings 17.1. And I wonder if the talk around town as the famine continued to go, if they began to wonder, is Elijah who he says he was? Is it really true that he has the ability to hold back rain? I wonder what would happen if Ahab could get his hands on Elijah. I wonder if there was some uh, betting going on on who might win in that incredible battle against the great king of Israel and this prophet from a no unknown land. If people began to say, man, I'm with Ahab, and others say, no, I really think Elijah would be able to take Ahab. I think he's the winner no doubt there seems to be a, a, a pregame fanfare that takes place. Now, in our text last week, we saw the two prize fighters, if you will, just as in the boxing world. They meet together long before the fight, and they have a face-to-face interaction. Now, we don't see them getting on scales and, 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 and uh, measuring their arm spans as boxers do, but there's already beginning to be a sparring that takes place. Ahab says to Elijah, oh, is it you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah shoots back. He says, I'm not the issue. I'm not the problem for this famine. I'm not the reason for it. But you, Ahab, are because you have forsaken the commands of God. And so what does Elijah say? Elijah says, let's finish this once and for all. Let's address this once and for all. Let's prove who is the best of the best. And so he tells, notice what the text says, he tells Ahab in verse 20, or in verse 19, to summon the people from all over Israel and to meet on Mount Carmel. That is where the contest is going to take place. And verse 20 says that Ahab went and sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now as we look at this fanfare, As we look at the situation before the great contest, we must first of all look at the temperature of the crowd. Anytime you assemble a group of people together for a big game or a a big event, the crowd is a part of the show. The crowd is a part of the dynamics that are going to take place. And we see that begin to happen. Now, we don't know how many people actually showed up for the event But it seems to think, it seems to be that the people were summoned, it says in verse 19, from all over Israel. Now, we don't know how King Ahab did that. We we know he didn't have the ability of modern-day technology like uh, Twitter and Facebook and all that. Say, hey, come see the show, Elijah versus Ahab, battle of the century. Let's see whose God is best. But they came. We don't know how long it took them to get there. Uh, But scholars believe that a crowd into the thousands was there. And what would that crowd look like? What would that crowd be a part of? And we see the temperature that takes place. Now, as, as a way of clarification, even before we get to the crowd, we must recognize that there are three groups of people uh, in regards to this contest. First of all, there's Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal. There's Elijah, and he's there by himself, representing his God. And then there are what would seemingly be thousands of people who don't have a, uh, a response, who don't have a uh, position, but are there to see what will happen and know how to respond as the results come in. And so this crowd, this group of people, the Israelite people, are brought together. They have been summoned. 
Now notice what verse 21 says. Who are they going to be for? Elijah, it says, goes before the people and says, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Now I want you to understand that where these people are at is they don't, they're not rooting for anybody. They just want the answer to the question, who should we worship? And what they've been doing, the scripture says, is they've been wavering. They've been going back and forth. And one day they say, Jehovah is God. And then the next day they'll go and they'll say, well, Jehovah isn't doing it for me. What has he not done for me lately? I'm going to go to Baal. And they would go back and forth, wavering between one and the other. Scholars tell us that the reason why they did that was because they held so much to tradition that if their parents believed that way and their descendants believed that way, then it was probably important that they believe in Yahweh, Jehovah God. But then they would look and their sensuality and their perversions and their sinful desires would lead them away from the God who would condemn those things and they would pursue Baal because he was the fun God. He was the exciting God. He was the God where all the action was at. And so if I wanted to have a good time, I wanted to make sure I was with Baal. And they would waver back and forth. Well, Jehovah's important. He was important to my family. He's important to our history. But man, there's nobody like the weekend God of Baal. Before we even move any farther... This wavering didn't just happen in the Old Testament, but brothers and sisters, it's happening today and it's in this place. Some of us are finding ourselves wavering between two opinions. On Sunday, we're solely and, and, and excited about what God is doing. And God is our God and we can amen and we can praise God in song. We can praise God in the preaching of his word. And we're like, man, there's no greater God in the world than Jehovah God and his son, Jesus Christ. But then Monday comes around. And Tuesday and Wednesday. And, and, and the distant memory of what we remembered in our worship services it becomes that, a memory. And we begin to find ourselves cozying up and warming up to the gods of this world. Because, let's be honest, there's nothing like the gods of this world, if you will. They're fun. They allow me to do what I want. If I feel something, then I should do it. That's what the gods of the world say. But God, man, he, he's sometimes a killjoy. I want to I follow him, but it's hard. Whereas it's real easy to pursue the pleasures of this world. And so just like in Old Testament times, wavering between two opinions, Elijah nails them to the wall and he says, when will you decide who your God is going to be? What a reminder for us this morning that some of us find ourselves wavering. A decision needs to be made. Some of you as young people, especially some of our teenagers, are wavering between two opinions. And you find yourself a lot like Obadiah of last week, a secret service Christian. Uh, nobody knows that you're a believer. And you find yourselves because you want to be able to participate in the garbage of the world. And so you say, you know what, I'll, I won't tell anybody I'm a believer so that when I engage in that stuff, they won't ask any questions in regards to it. This is the spiritual temperature of the people. It's lukewarm. Understand just for a moment, let me read a passage of Scripture that speaks to what God thinks of lukewarmness. In Revelation 13, 
Revelation, I'm sorry, not 13. Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16, it says this to the church at Laodicea. It says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. God says, hey, I can't stand you because you won't take a stand. You won't be either hot or cold. It's one thing to be cold, but to be back and forth, to be wishy-washy is so sickening to me that I just want to vomit you out of my mouth. God hates lukewarmness. And the people of Israel had become comfortable as a result of it. Now notice what lukewarmness creates. They may have thought that it was comfortable. They may have thought it was easy. But they had just experienced three and a half years of God's judgment because of their lukewarmness. And Elijah is about to show them how great God is and that you cannot serve two masters, that you will love one and hate the other. Notice next we see the terms of the contest As we continue to move forward in this, Elijah speaks up to the people and he says, all right, there has to be a plan. How are we going to determine who is going to win? If we determine it on differing views, then there could be confusion. And so Elijah says, we need to find out how we're going to prove whose God is best. And a test is going to need to be done. Now notice in verses 23 and 24, he goes and he says, get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves, and then cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. There's a couple things in regards to this test that I think are important. And just like as we see uh, at the beginning of any ball game or uh, football game, basketball, football, or even baseball, is the umpires and the referees will bring people together. And even in boxing, we see this happen. And there'll be a ground rules meeting. These are the things that are going to be okay. These are the things that are out of bounds. Elijah sets forth the ground rules. He says, all right, The rules that I hold you to will be the rules that I myself will hold myself to. And I'll notice, within regards to this test, that there are a couple things that I want us to draw out. First of all, and you can write this in your uh, outline, first of all, the test was essential. We needed a test to prove who was God. No more could we have, well, my God's better than your God. No, my God is better than your God. Sounds like a bunch of kindergartners talking about whose dad can beat up the other. That wouldn't work because it was just talk. At the end of the day, we couldn't just have talking going on, but there had to be action. And so there was a test that was essential to them knowing who the victor would be. Notice this test is equal. It's an equal test. You're going to do the same thing that I'm going to do, and we are going to uh, do everything the same And so that there's no question on who's cheating. There's no question on who is getting the upper hand. And so it's essential. It's equal. Notice there was an expectation. He says, I want you to use the same animal, the same altar, the same fire. Okay? And the expectation was is that the God would answer by fire. That God is going to respond. And so we don't have to wonder of what the solution was going to be because God was going to answer at the end of it. Now notice, it was essential, it was equal, there was an expectation, and notice, it was endorsed by the people. It was endorsed by the people. Notice verse 24. Then all the people said, what you say is good. 
Notice the silence of the prophets of Baal. They didn't say anything, but the people did. You notice that the prophets of Baal aren't saying anything because I think that their, their desire is to be popular. Their desire is not to ruffle feathers, if you will, with the people. And so they remain silent, but the people say, yeah, this will work. This will, will be something that will produce the results that we're looking for. Now, I love this about the story. Because in this we see total honesty in regards to the prophet Elijah and the total transparency and integrity of our God in heaven. One thing I love about God is that he is so completely faithful. There is no sleight of hands with God. There is no loaded deck of cards. Just 100% truth. Even when he deals with his enemies, he is fair. Isn't that good that we have a trustworthy God? That he's fair with his enemies, and if he's fair with his enemies, how much fairer, how much more trustworthy would he be with his children? God is honest, and he is completely, totally filled with utter integrity. Now notice within this that here we are. The stage has been set. A large assembly of people have gathered, probably in the thousands, and now they are waiting They've been waiting for this battle for three and a half years because hopefully at the end of this battle, rain is going to come. Hopefully at the end of this battle that once and for all, the God who is the king of the universe would bring forth the needed rain so they could get back to their lives instead of living in the destruction. And so while they had been challenged by Elijah, they found themselves excited to see who would come out on top and who they would follow. Now that leads me to a second point, and that is the prize fight. No battle is ever done on the airwaves of sports talk radio. No fight or game is uh, culminated in the parking lot with a grill and bratwurst. you got to play the game. you got to join into the uh, combat between the two teams or two individuals to prove who is going to take place. And so the talking is over. The ground rules have been laid. Now it is time for the individuals to take the field and to begin the process. Now notice what takes place. According to the plan, the prophets of Baal take their first turn. Now notice what we see. First of all, we see within this the spastic activity of the Baal prophets. Notice their response. I wonder if for a moment as they take the field that they're like a a football team running through the tunnel into the stadium, charging onto the field with reckless abandonment. There's fire in their eyes. They are fired up. They're ready to see their God be victorious, and they are armed and ready to go to prove their God's greatness. Now notice a couple things within regards to this. They carry a great representation, 450 prophets. That's a lot of people. That's quite a a showing. And so they come on, and I wonder if there was all kinds of pomp and circumstance surrounding their arrival. Here we are. We are the unified prophets of Baal. Hear us roar. But notice that it goes on. And it tells us that even there's a a part of this intimidating force that Elijah speaks to the issue of deception. Notice in verse 25, he says uh, twice, not to light the fire. He says in verse 25, he shares that, and then in verse 23. Now, why would he say that to the Baal prophets? 
Scholars tell us that the reason why Elijah is doing this is it's just a reminder to the prophets of Baal, hey, I'm watching you, don't cheat. Don't start any fires underneath. Don't be starting anything. And the reason why was according to even extra-biblical writings and historians of that day that Baal worshipers and the Baal prophets were known for their deceptive ways. That they would say fire would come and the way that they would do it is they would start a little kindling fire that would begin underneath when nobody was watching. And Elijah says, none of that funny business. You're going to do this according to the rules that have been laid forth. And here are the people, and they are the judge, if you will, of who is going to be right and who is going to be wrong. And so we have representation. We see the issue of deception. Now notice their dedication. Look at what the text says. It says that they take the field. And they put the uh, bull onto the altar. And it says in verse 26 that they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. Look at verse 27. At noon, they're still doing it. And Elijah says, maybe shout louder. And so they shouted louder, verse 28 says. Now notice what happens. They shout, and they're in part of all of this frenzied activity, it says in verse 29, until the time of the evening sacrifice. Let me tell you something. Let me give some props to the Baal prophets. They are diligent. They are dedicated to the glory of their God. From morning till night, striving to get their God to answer. What a reminder for us as Christians that many times it is the false religions and it is the cults that outdo us as believers. Their dedication of going and sharing uh, a false gospel, their desire and their involvement in their churches to pursue uh, an understanding of their false God outweighs many times our own dedication. In fact, some of us are struggling to just be here this morning uh, for an hour and a half And yet these people are in their ongoing worship, not just for the morning, but into the evening, dedicated to pursuing their God. Now notice it leads to desperation. Verse 28, nobody has responded, so they shout louder, and it says that they began to slash themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. In Old Testament times, it was all uh, all too common for people in their times of worship, especially when they were in a frenzied state of pursuing their deity, that they would begin to slash their bodies. As if saying, look at how desperate I am and how I need you to answer me. In fact, the scriptures in the Old Testament speak about God announcing to his people, in your worship of me, in your reverence of me, don't ever slash your body. This is not what you need to do. I am here with you. I am your God, and I will listen to you. You don't have to go to those antics and those ways to get my attention. And so they're completely desperate. And they find themselves coming to a place of culmination at the time of the evening sacrifice. As the sun is setting, nothing has happened. Nothing. After all the dancing and gyrating and all of the yelling and screaming and prancing around, all of that, at the end of it, it culminates in nothing. Now there are three things that we see. First of all, no response from Baal. Write that down in your outlines. There was no response from Baal. I wonder if on Mount Carmel there was the sound of crickets chirping just the chirping of little crickets. If you could hear the breeze, 
as if they were uh, waiting for this big, momentous occasion to happen, and totally exhausted, the 450 prophets fall to the ground, and, and nothing takes place but silence. There's no response from Baal. Next, notice that there was no respect from Elijah. Verse 27 says, At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he says. Surely he is a god. Now notice what he says. This, I love scripture. It makes me laugh. This is what Elijah says. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Maybe, I wonder if, if Elijah was leaning up against a tree and just kind of watching for, for the hours, just kind of, I hope I don't break the, uh, the piano by doing this, but just kind of leaning back and, and looking out to the crowd. Hey, hey, bail, guys. You got to shout louder. Maybe your God, maybe he's sleeping. <laughs> he's sleeping. Can you get that, a God who's sleeping? Maybe he's sleeping. Try that. Try that. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he didn't give a forwarding address. Maybe he went to Disney World. <laughs> God who goes to Disney World, I kid you can imagine. My favorite one is they say in the NIV, maybe he's busy. This is the only time where there's a reference to God or a God using the restroom. That's a good place to laugh. Maybe your, your God's in the bathroom. Maybe shout louder. Give him a minute. Let him finish up. As if a God needs to use the bathroom. And he taunts them over and over again. And I wonder if that created the frenzy. And you say, well, that's not very nice to taunt people. It's not very nice to be sarcastic when you mock the God of the universe. Your pastor gives you permission to be sarcastic. When you think that your made-up God is better than the God of eternity... Use sarcasm. It's healthy and it's very effective. And Elijah taunts them. He says, hey, your God, he's not listening. Do what you got to do. And he continues to uh, promote this sarcasm in their life because he wants them to see the utter peril of their thoughts. And so he mocks them and mocks their pursuit of going after this nobody God in light of the God that he serves. Now notice, there's no respect from Elijah. There's no regard from the people. I had never seen this before as I've read this text numerous times. But notice verse 29. It says, Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. That's speaking of Baal. No one answered. That's speaking of Baal as well. But notice what they say next. This is speaking of the people. No one paid attention. There was no regard from the people. They're like, this is boring. I mean, I'm tired of watching these yahoos jumping around and screaming. This is dumb. Let me tell you something. Just as with the gods of this world, when we pursue them and try to see them show up when we need them, they will always fail, and they will always leave us wanting more. And that's what the people found themselves struggling with. Where's the pizzazz? Where's the culmination? Where is the big show by your God? I thought your God was going to be able to do it, man. That's what we've always heard from all of those lessons you've told us. And nothing, I don't have time for your God. This this God has left me wanting for more. And so all the spastic activity 
nothing happens. Notice next the settled approach by Elijah. The settled approach by Elijah. It's evening. After a day of yelling and screaming, I wonder if the people had seen enough. What was God going to do? How was he going to prove that his God was number one? What gymnastics would he have to employ? He has to do nothing. In fact, he does the absolute opposite. Notice a couple things about Elijah's response. First of all, there's an invitation. Verse 30, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, it says, So what do we see happen? Not to stand back and be a spectator, but an invitation to experience God. I want you to understand this and listen to this very carefully. When we witness to people, we don't have to do a song and a dance to get people to obey the command of salvation, the gospel call. We don't have to sit there and try to somehow finagle our way to look good and to look exciting to people. All we need to do is give an invitation for a person to experience the work of Almighty God in their life. Just come and experience Jesus. Come close and experience him. Give Jesus an opportunity, and he will prove you right every time. There's no pyrotechnics, none of that. Elijah says, just come close. I want you to experience my God. Notice next that there's restoration. He invites, and now he must restore. In verse 30, it says that he has to repair the altar. We're not sure why or what transpired, but we know that during the commotion of the day, the altar was broken down and unable to be used. So Elijah, the good prophet, begins to repair and make the altar usable for his master's use. If there isn't a sign of God's redemptive plan in this story, I don't know where it would be then. But here is the example of when we as human beings, in our own pursuits, in our own desires, in our own selfish religions, try to pursue our own gods, we destroy the very opportunity we have to commune with the God of the universe. And there's nothing left for us to do. The altar is broken, no way to communicate, and here comes God. And God says, I will restore the altar so that there can be communion. Understand this, we had destroyed every opportunity that we had as as, uh, people because of our sin. We destroyed the only way that we had to have fellowship. And it was God who came by the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, who said, let me restore the opportunity. Let me restore the way back to you, back to me, the way of salvation. So God rebuilds just as Elijah did. In verses 33 and 34, we see Elijah adds a step. He doesn't just uh, move on, but it says he saturates the wood. As if to say it's far too easy in a a famined land to have dry wood. That's child's play to light dry wood on fire. I mean, that's an easy combustible problem. And so what I want you to do is I want you to throw water on it. And literally, there were barrels of water that were thrown on it. Not once, not twice, but three times. Now you say, in a land of famine, where did they get the water, right? That's got to be a question. And there's a lot of um, uh, liberal theologians say, this is a contradiction. In a land of famine, where could you get it? If you look on a map of where Mount Carmel is, you're going to see a big body of blue water called the Mediterranean Sea. It's not too far at all from there. Now, the Mediterranean Sea is filled with salt water, not anything that you can drink or be used for human use, but there was no problem using it to throw it on fire because salt water, or not on the fire, but on the wood, because salt water is just as wet as fresh water, right? 
And so they probably gathered the water from the Mediterranean Sea and in barrels, they put it on it three times. And God wants to prove himself that against all odds and all human logic, I want to show you how truly great I am. In fact, the water was so immense that it made a puddle, a massive puddle in the trench that had been dug. Now notice, without creating a scene, Elijah pursues supplication in verse 36 and 37. No song and dance, he just prays, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that the people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Understand a couple things about this prayer. And this is important that you write these things down. The first thing is that if we want God to answer our prayers, even in the tough seasons of life, we need to start with the glory of God. Notice that it isn't the request, first of all, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that you are God in Israel. A lot of our prayers are just a litany of lists of what we need. Oh God, can you? Oh God, will you? Oh God, will you provide for this? Or will you take care of that? And and we never get to the place of, of really responding and saying, God, the reason why I'm coming to you is you are so great and I am so small. And so there's the glory of God that needs to be announced in our prayers. God is the one who is to be praised. Then notice the next thing is that it's heard because it's done in obedience. Notice what Elijah says. He says, you're God. And he says, I want you to also know, and I want the world to know that I am your servant and have done all things at your command. Some of us are praying for answers to prayer. And we're saying, God, aren't you the God of Elijah? Didn't you answer Elijah's prayer? Why won't you answer mine? Because many of the commands that God has laid before you up to this point, you have decided not to follow. And God says, I'm not going to give you an answer to the prayer until you become obedient. And as Elijah did, follow the commands of God. Notice next that God hears prayers when it intercedes for others. When it intercedes for others. Notice what the text says. He says, answer me, O Lord, not so that I will be known as this great man who brought fire down from heaven. He doesn't say anything like that. He says, so these people, Lord, I'm praying for these, these that need to be able to know that you are God because you are turning their hearts back to them. He is praying for the evangelistic cause of their hearts. And if we want to see prayers being answered, then we are going to be in tune with the heart of God that wants to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is what Elijah does. And notice in verse 38, we see God act. There's action. Notice what 38 says. Instead of silence with Baal, we see that the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. A sign of utter completion. Notice, the test was done and God proves it. He devours the altar, the water, the rocks, and the earth below. God says, I'm going to show you my fire. In midst of the backdrop of darkness, here is utter completion, showing God's utter power. Now one thing before I leave this and go to my final point is that I want you to observe. Notice where the fire fell. It fell on the altar. 
Now notice, God didn't always set the fire on the altar. That there were times, especially because of outright rebellion of God's people, that the fire fell on the people. And what a reminder of God's grace. God's grace in a season where we deserved fire and the people of Israel deserved fire that God says, no, I'm going to put it on the altar. And I think it's incredibly symbolic that the altar had on it a bull which was significant because it was the sin offering of the people in Old Testament times. And so what we see is God says, I'm going to bring my wrath But my wrath is going to be put on another so that you will be spared. A picture of God's grace. And you say, well, that's great for the people of Israel. Let me tell you how much better it is for us. That the wrath of Almighty God was on us. Ephesians 2 says we were object of God's wrath. But on the cross, a place called Golgotha, God put his son, Jesus Christ, on that cross. And instead of bringing the fire of Almighty God on us, he put it solely onto the back of his son, Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel of grace. And it's done then in the Old Testament as a sign of what is going to take place in the New Testament. God could have poured out his judgment. And he could pour out his judgment on us but he shows grace and an opportunity to return to him. Now notice finally the post-game fallout. The clock runs down to zeros. The game has been decided. God has won. Now what might happen? What events would transpire? I see two. First of all, the exaltation of God. It says in verse 39 that the people... When all the people saw this, they fell and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. All of a sudden, their compromise, all of a sudden, their lukewarmness is gone. And they've seen the hand of Almighty God, and they lift up their voices, and they declare His praises to everyone. I don't care who sees it. The Lord of Jehovah, the God of Isaac and Jacob the God of Abraham, the God of Elijah. He is the one. He is the victorious one. He is the great I am. But notice, it's a delayed response. For three and a half years, they'd experienced the judgment of God. And for three and a half years, they lived compromised lives. Understand this, that whether you like it or not, every person will say the same words one day. And either it will be based on what you see of the grace of Almighty God, as these people did, or on the great day of judgment, God will bring you into his throne room, and the scripture says that on that great day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the decision that you need to make is either you're going to do that based on the work of God's grace in your life and say, Lord, you're God, there's no other one. Or on that great day of judgment, as you're being ushered into a place of destruction where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, that you will be placed down on your knee and you will say, but before you leave, there's one thing. You're going to give me the praise and honor that's due my name. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Finally, we see the execution of the prophets of Baal. Verse 40, it says, The people took the prophets and they killed them. Now, some struggle with this, but there are two reasons. Number one, it would prove the repentance of the people. 
It would prove their repentance. No longer were they compromised. They served one God and one prophet. That was it. And so get rid of any other uh, wannabes. Get rid of any other pretenders. There's only one. And we follow Yahweh. And that's settled. We're not going to live that way anymore. And so it proves their repentance. They're going to live differently. And also it's a proper recourse. It was scriptural. Deuteronomy 13.5 told them that they were to put to death false prophets in their land. They were to do that. And notice it was beneficial. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's the Old Testament God, and I, I don't like that kind of God. He's, he's a very mean God. He shouldn't have done that. Let me tell you something. You remember that line of thinking when you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, oh, by the way, you have cancer in your body, and instead of getting rid of it, because that's not very nice, let's just kind of see what happens. And let's tell the cancer to just stay quiet and don't. No, that's not what you do with cancer. What do you do with cancer? You say, get rid of it. Get it out of my body. I want it as far away as possible. And there was spiritual cancer in the camp. And God says, I want it done once and for all. Get rid of it. I don't want to see it. And we see the judgment of God. And why? Because these people were leading others astray. And God says we need to deal with it. And he wants it removed. So God has taken on Baal. And he's won. 451 tough odds. But from a human perspective, we would have said he didn't have a chance. But because Almighty God was with Elijah, he would be victorious. A showdown with darkness would prove that God was the best around. And yet it would take one more showdown. The greatest showdown of all time on the cross of Calvary, where all the powers of hell would try to win. And yet, once again, they would be no match for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one day, that showdown will be done once and for all when God puts a chain on the devil and throws him into a bottomless pit. So what are we to do with all of this? I've got just a minute or two left and I need to close. Let me give you a couple parting thoughts as we apply this. Three guiding principles this morning as we look at this incredible narrative. Number one, don't be mistaken. Idolatry isn't just about statues. You say, well, what does this apply to me? They were were pursuing a, a god named Baal. I don't pursue Baal. No, but you may pursue sex. You may pursue fame. You may pursue money, hobbies, relationships, job promotions, a television, you name it. A different kind of life. Brothers and sisters, we all fall prey to idolatry. And even if you find yourself living a compromised state, understand that a compromised life is just like all-out idolatry. It's no different. Divided allegiance is no different than you being an enemy. And so we need to put to death once and for all this notion that we're going to serve anybody else but Jesus Christ. No one else will be in our eyes. No one else will be uh, our pursuit except for Jesus and him alone. It doesn't take a statue to be idolatrous. Number two, prayer is the believer's most important weapon. Start praying more. Elijah has shown us over and over again his pursuit of prayer. We'll see it again next week and in a couple weeks later once again. And yet we are so prone not to pray. Just like the disciples who needed more rest, they find themselves being uh, more focused in on their physical needs and their own desires and enjoyment that they could not pray that final hour with their Savior, with their Master, one hour to pray. 
how true it is for us. We are so prone to make prayer the final thing that we do instead of the first thing that is done. Start praying more. We give you resources, not so that we can cut down more trees. We give you resources so that we will be a people of prayer. And finally, we see the last one is that one life dedicated to making a difference can change the world. Elijah turned a whole nation back to God. One life. One life. And some of you find yourself right now just as uh, Elijah did before the prophets of Baal. You say, Tim, I'm the only Christian in my school. And there's only 450 other ones, and they're just taunting me and telling me how dumb I am. What change can I make? There's 450 uh, of them in my workplace or in my neighborhood. What am I going to do? Let me just close with this final illustration. Many of you know the story of my brother. I told it a couple uh, weeks ago, but I didn't tell you the final part of the story. My brother struggled with all kinds of, of temptations and sins. He dealt with issues of drinking as a, as a teenager. He was out of control. And then something happened because of the ministry of this church. He came to youth group one night, and God grabbed a hold of him. And he came up with this phrase, and I'll never forget him coming home and saying, Dad... I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to make a difference. Every day I'm going to go with the thought of how I can make a difference for God. The drinking stopped. The, the uh, hanging out with, with the kids doing all of the bad things stopped happening. The rebellion against mom and dad stopped happening. And for one year, from his junior year to his senior year, he dedicated himself to pursuing God's glory in his school and not his own. He lost a lot of friends. He lost a lot of popularity. And then he, when he died, the question was, would he make a difference? A young man, 16 years old, from a small little school out in Hinkley, he passes away. Three local high schools closed because of his death. 2,000 people attended his wake. And we just received, just a, about a year ago, a letter from someone who gave their life to Jesus Christ last year because of the impact that my brother had 20 years ago. One life, one teenager, one person in a workplace, one person who will stand up and say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore, but I'm going to make a difference and you can change the world for Jesus Christ. The question is, will you? Because you will leave this place today and the distractions of this world will come colliding into your world and you will forget this message. But my prayer is that you will make the decision today as we spring forward, that that would be a reminder that we spring forward into a new way of living, living for God and no longer living for self. Because when you do that, God is on your side. I don't care how many who are against you. What can man do against you if God is with us? Who could be against us? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for what it's taught us today. Lord, I thank you for the truth that you are victorious over all competitors, that you are victorious against all who will stand against you. And Lord, we get to stand and we get to see that. We get to see your power and your strength. We get to announce that. But Lord, I pray that we would not have the spirit of the people within us 
that we would not waver, but we would stand firm that you are our God and we are your people and we are here just as Elijah did, one amongst many, that we are here to live and serve for you, to bring you glory and to see people come to the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. That's what we want. Now, Lord, give us the dedication. Give us the endurance. Give us the perseverance to make that happen. And so, Lord, I pray that the Spirit would fall upon us in a fresh way to accomplish that, not so that we will be known, but so that your glory, long after we're gone, would be made known to the nations. Oh, that's what we want. That's what we desire. That is our prayer this morning. So lead us from this place with that change in our heart. Lead us from this place with that desire in us to stand strong and to change this world one life at a time.